I'm Laura Jones. Welcome to Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives. On the show tonight, James Jackson III of the Utah Black Chamber is back to wrap up his series with folks featured in the new book, Black Utah, Stories from a Thriving Community. I say wraps up loosely because he will be back with more as we can get it scheduled, folks. If you haven't had a chance to pick up the book, check tonight's show notes for a link. Tonight, he'll be talking with Betty Sawyer of the NAACP Ogden chapter about her life in Utah and all the work she continues to put in on equality, civil rights, and so much more. In particular, she's got some news to break about this year's Juneteenth and Jazz Brunch. It's been a hard day given Russia's invasion of Ukraine, so coming up, Amos Giora, professor of law at the S.J. Quinney College of Law, University of Utah, will share his perspective on the matter and what he thinks comes next from the U.S. and our NATO allies. It's a simple question, I mean, complicated as hell, but it's a simple question. Is the West going to be an enabler and or bystander the way, seriously, the way their forefathers were 80 years ago? Of course, Giora is the author of The Crime of Complicity, The Bystander in the Holocaust. It is the nonfiction narrative of his own family's experiences in Hungary and the Netherlands during the Holocaust. First, a few rallies and resources for you. Today is day 24 of Free Fair February, which means it doesn't cost anything, not a dime, to use any bit of UTA. The bus, front runner, on demand, all month long, across their service. In fact, I'm thinking of taking front runner up to Ogden on Saturday to get to the seed swap with Ogden Seed Exchange. It's about a one and a half mile walk from where it's gonna let me off to the Ogden Preparatory Academy for the event that starts at 10 a.m. No ticket necessary, but I noticed that there's two brew pubs on the way on that walk. Oh, and Aldine, KRCL's punk rock farmer, will be teaching one of the breakout sessions on seed saving at the seed swap. Again, no ticket necessary. Details on the rallies and resources page of krcl.org. Equity, diversity, and inclusion at the University of Utah will close out events for Black History Month on Monday with Black History in the Utah Business Community at 12.15 p.m. James Jackson, who's going to be on later talking to Betty Sawyer, will lead the conversation. Also on February 28th, EDI will be hosting a conversation called Healing Bear River, Healing Great Salt Lake, a conversation with Darren Perry at 7 p.m. Darren is the former chairman of the Northwestern Band of the Shoshone Nation and will share the importance of the Great Salt Lake to his tribe. And this weekend, The Nature of Color, a new special exhibition opens to the public at the Natural History Museum of Utah in Salt Lake City. It's a traveling exhibition from the American Museum of Natural History in New York. The Nature of Color reveals the integral role color plays in nature and across cultures. To find out more, I caught up with the museum's Timothy Lee on Zoom earlier today. Here's that conversation. Uh, as the director of exhibits, I get to look at all the assortment and variety of different special exhibits that we can host here at the Natural History Museum of Utah. And this is one that popped up um, on our radar early on when it was being developed in New York City at the American Museum of Natural History um, many years ago. And uh, as luck has it, we're actually the first venue to rent it. So this is the premiere outside of New York City um, of the nature of color. And I'm so excited about offering the opportunity to our community to come check it out. Well, it starts on February 26th, and it's immersive. Folks get to explore the role and power of color in the natural world, in human cultures, and in our personal lives. And when the attention on Black History Month um, really kind of brings this to the fore, Tim. Yeah, that's really interesting. One of my favorite features in the exhibition is actually an artist installation at the very end. Um, she uses Pantone colors, which in the design field is a color matching system that allows a translation of what you see um, on screen to what is going to be printed. It allows a very uh, great uh, calibration and accurate uh, color replication. And what she did is she took photos of a diversity of people and then she matched their overall skin tone with the Pantone color. So at the end, you are, you know, immersed by uh, portrait after portrait uh, matched with a Pantone color. And 
just the diversity in human characteristics, skin color, um, just overall looks is, I find so fascinating. I spent a long time in there and I try to match my skin color up with others too. Who am I most like? Who am I really different from? It's super cool. Well, the curator of the nature of color, there was a great quote in the press release that you all sent over. said, we wouldn't have colors if it weren't for physics. We wouldn't have colors if it weren't for the evolutionary process. We wouldn't have colors if it weren't for the cultural attitudes of people. So what are you hoping folks walk away from this with? That's a really good question. Um, I hope that guests come to the exhibit and have a great time. It's, as you mentioned, very immersive. There's a lot of body on, not just hands on, but full body interactives that you get to play with color with using your entire body um, and mixing it with projected environments. So that's really cool. You get to use prisms and light reflectors um, to really experience the physics and the playful nature of color. But I hope they come across with, you know, general knowledge of how it's played a huge significance in our cultures how color is an emotional co component in our day-to-day -day lives that we can't separate ourselves from. And, you know, we associate different uh, feelings with colors. Um, I hope that they come across that color is a hugely impactful part of the natural world and um, animals and um, plants use color strategically to thrive in different ecosystems. I hope people come across uh, the University of Utah football uniform and see how color can inspire um, thousands of fans all roaring in a stadium, um, play after play. Um, and I hope people come across this exhibit and really experience why color is something that day to day we take for granted, but in every part of our cultures and every part of our day to day life, it, it plays a huge significance. Now, lest parents listening to this think, I can't take my kids there. They're going to come out covered in paint. This is the <laughs> immersive technology part of it. You can do it all without making a mess. That's right. Yeah, with digital technology, with projection, you can actually use a projected environment, not get messy, avoid all that, and ensure that your kids are playing with color. I'm sure this is a product that everyone wishes that they had at home. Um <laughs> to minimize the mess. But it is um, one of the things that I think makes it stand out is you have objects, you have uh, deep dives into the science, the natural history, the cultural history, the emotions around color, but then you have all the interactives too that make it really uh, for all ages. There are also some live animals too. So that makes it unique. Um, we have uh, five different species of animals that are featured in the exhibit. I'm guessing maybe some chameleons that can change color? Oh, that would have been a great idea. Okay, you, you need to call me before you do these things. <laughs> yeah, we have a gecko. Um, we have that sort of uses camouflage. Um, so okay, similar. I'll give it to you. You got it. <laughs> we have uh, poison dart frogs, very charismatic. And they use color right as a, a symbol of like, stay away. It's a warning symbol in the natural world. And we have a stag beetle that has this beautiful iridescent um, they shell. They are beautiful, those stag beetles. <laughs> so, Timothy Lee, where can folks learn more, get their tickets, et cetera? At our website. It's nhmu.utah.edu. We open February 26th, Saturday, and we run through August 14th. Uh, you can buy tickets online. And of course, uh, the viewing of this special exhibition is included in the cost of a general admission ticket and members get in free. Timothy Lee, Exhibits Manager and Senior Exhibit Designer at the Natural History Museum of Utah. Check tonight's show notes for a link to The Nature of Color, which opens Saturday at the Natural History Museum of Utah. And now my conversation with Professor Amos Giora of the S.J. Quinney College of Law at the University of Utah. He is the author of The Crime of Complicity, the Bystander in the Holocaust. He's on break from the university and back home with his family in Israel when I reached him earlier today on Zoom. Here's our conversation. Professor Giora, thanks for giving me some time. You're actually in Israel as we record this. And I'm just curious for your thoughts. Usually about this time of year, aren't you getting ready to do a war game scenario with students at the college? April, April 8th this coming year, next month. Well, it's almost next month because we're almost almost in March, right? April 8th is the, the annual counterterrorism simulation. Um, you know, it's an interesting question you asked. 
this is obviously not a, a counterterrorism act. This is war. We need to be clear. This, this is war. This is an invasion. Um, from the Russian perspective, he's not invading the Ukraine. He's freeing the Ukraine. I don't think Putin ever saw Ukraine as an independent country. He always saw it as part of you know, Mother Russia. And he's here to free the Ukraine from its from his from his perspective, a government that's that's occupying Ukraine, and I think it's only a matter of days at the rate that we're all watching the, the forces advance through the, the Ukraine that he will um, install a Russian puppet, um, and then the the world, the Western world, whether it's you know Boris Johnson, Macron, Schultz in Germany, Biden, are going to have to ask themselves a really difficult question. And here's the question: Are we going to be bystanders and enablers? the way that our forefathers were 80 years ago when Hitler marched. I mean, Hitler, you know, went this way, this way, this way, and, and Putin is clearly going west. How far west will he go? Who knows? I think really in, in the sense of international relations, global ge geopolitics, international relations, it's a pretty, it's a simple question. I mean, complicated as hell, but it's a simple question. Is the West going to be an enabler and or bystander the way, seriously, the way their forefathers were 80 years ago? You've written a lot about this from the personal by, from the personal bystander to the bystanders uh, that enabled the Holocaust. And I asked you under the tenure of President Trump, are we there yet? When, if, in saying, looking back on history, we're now in a spot similar to what we had between World War I and World War II. And now I hear you say, this is 80 years ago. It is. And I, and I tell you, if you if you reference the former president, I think it's important to add, because we're in a really, really, really tense time. We're like at a crossroads. I believe it was yesterday, because, you know, with the time zones, because I'm here in Israel, I believe it was yesterday that the former president of the United States of America defined Putin as a genius. And I and I warmly recommend to the former President Trump and those who are, are, are mouthing his words. I mean, like, really? We're talking about a, a, a leader of a country who is killing. Um, the reports now about not only Ukrainian soldiers killed, but Ukrainian civilians killed. And the former president of the United States of America calls him a genius. We will, I don't think, ever know about that bizarre four-year relationship when Trump was president. And and I've listened to other, uh, frankly, uh, members of the Utah congressional delegation um, in the last few days. Um, this is not the time for, for cheap and easy politics playing to a particular base. This is a, a time for hard-nosed, hard-edged geopolitics. And it's the time, and I really, to all those who are scoring cheap political points, this is not the time for that. I mean, it, it didn't work 80 years ago, and it sure as hell isn't going to work today. Well, given your experience and your expertise, not only um, with wargaming scenarios, but your legal approach to this, what are the legal ramifications? I mean, there's talk of labeling Putin a, a war criminal, which wouldn't sure. he would not be able to travel outside of Russia. I believe Bush the Younger had that uh, potential attached to him by other countries after um, going into Iraq. At one point, there was talk of other countries um, potentially engaging, interesting in them. So this is a tit for tat. It, it, not only that, I mean, there's, it's out there, you know, I mean, social media, social media at the moment, does, do Western countries recall their ambassadors from Russia? Do Western countries cast um, a somewhere between an orange to a red flag? Do our sporting events where Russian athletes are participating, are they no longer invited? Are sporting events, because sports is really important in Russia. And he waited for the Olympics to end, right? That's right. Hang on. That's right. Um, do nations um, denormalize relations with Russia? Um, you are 100% right. Um, Putin and generals, will the long arm of, of the inter of an, an international tribunal, one way or the other, will it, would it you know, get their hand on them? Way, 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 way too early for that. In the interim, you know, there's been talk about sanctions. So sanctions clearly have zero impact on Putin because, I mean, he obviously is a person with, with extraordinary personal resources, well hidden, well right. Um, and I don't see sanctions having an impact on him. Um, and I don't think sanctions are going to have an impact on the Russian people because who knows what the Russian people are being told at the moment. From what I understand here from the Israeli press, which is really locked in on this, there's really heavy censorship at the moment. Diplomacy. So Schultz from uh, Germany and Macron from France sought to, you know, um, engage with Putin. They misread him. Um, this didn't happen overnight. Uh, Putin has been planning this and planning this and planning this. And I also think from his perspective, um, I don't think he feels that the West ever took him seriously. 
And uh, he's always been, oh, you know, we've all done this with our hand. You know, KGB, eh, KGB. This is a super smart guy who plays uh, poker on a level that we don't, plays chess on a level we, that we don't. Um, he, for four years, was able to do, in terms of America, whatever he wanted to do, build up the army, make, you know, inroads here, make inroads there. I don't know um, to what extent he views President Biden as a equal uh, foe in this chess game. Um, complicating it, if that's not complicated enough, as you and I are having this conversation, there are ongoing negotiations with Iran. Um, the Iranians, I'm sure, are looking to see exactly how Biden plays. This is, you know, Biden the tough guards, he just, you know, mantra guy. Um, the Russian Air Force is pretty heavily engaged in Syria in all kinds of ways that aren't exactly clear. And last but not least, if that's not complicated enough, I have no doubt whatsoever that the Chinese are watching this really, 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 really carefully uh, to see um, to what extent America can be pushed. The, the the dominoes that are going to fall over the coming months and, and years are a bit terrifying. One of the things that I, a, a report that I was watching, and it was a translation of one of his speeches in the middle of the night or in the last 48 hours, was him essentially saying, um, I'm willing to go all the way, whether it's using my own nuclear weapons or targeting the nuclear power um, reactors in Ukraine. If you don't believe me, don't give me what I want. And that's that's one of the things that concerns me as a lay person. What does that bode? I would like to think that's a, even for him a step too far. You know, the problem with, with nuclear weapons, once you do this, you hit the button and off it goes, right? Um, but I think maybe he is also saying that as a, as a message to the West, take me seriously. Um, and he clearly, in his worldview, he's not invading Ukraine, he's rescuing Ukraine. And I think that's really important to view this from his perspective. And for, I have no doubt from him, he doesn't even care. I mean, he has no idea how many people are getting killed. Doesn't interest him. Right? That's the least of his concerns. Um, and as you know, bombs away. And, and I, it also seems to be. Again, because here in Israel, because we have Russian Jews from Ukraine and from Russia, it's a heavy Russian Jewish population here. You watch Putin and then you watch the Ukrainian president and it's, it's, I don't like to talk like this, but it's literally um, an adult against a child. Well, he's what, a former stand-up comedian? I don't, I, I think it's safe to say Putin has never taken him seriously since he attained office. And I think also Putin never took Trump seriously. Yeah, that's that's interesting. So what is it that you're watching? And as I ask you that, Belarus, apparently more than just letting Russian tanks come through their borders, are now joining in. Belarus is part of Russia. I mean, Belarus is part of Russia. Puppet, a puppet government, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, what am I watching? First of all, first of all because Israeli media is so locked in. This is a, there are Israelis who live in the Ukraine. There, there, there are a number of... Um, there's a Jewish Ukrainian population. There are also Jews who live in Russia, Israelis who live in Russia. The Israeli government here is really walking a tight, tight, tight rope because there are relations between Israel, obviously between Israel and Russia. Though in the last few days, Putin has signaled, I think maybe we all missed it, has signaled in the last few days, um, he's been lashing out of the Israeli government the last few days. He, like he had a relationship with Trump, had a relationship with Netanyahu, which is thankfully Netanyahu is no longer prime minister. Um, the question really will be what, happened, what happens when the Ukraine falls? I think that's the question. Um, and it, at the rate he's going, what is it, 17 hours in, um, heavy, heavy bombing planes, uh, ground forces, uh, tanks, and even though the Ukraine is a huge country, 45 million people, the Ukrainian army is no match um, for the marching Red Army. I think really the, the question needs to be, the question facing Biden and others is what happens when Ukraine falls? Does Putin stop at the Ukrainian-Polish border or does he say, huh, you know what? Warsaw Pact worked from 1945 to 1989. Let's recreate the damn thing. 
Well, and Zelensky, uh, one of the stories I saw overnight was he was calling to any Ukrainian to take up arms. He had an, a weapon for them. Sure. That's fine. So to hand out um, whatever the hell they have, AK-47s or whatever, pistols, guns, pitchforks, whatever the hell they have, fine. It's good for a photo. It's, I mean, it, 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 I, get, I, I get it politically. Absolutely, totally, without any, any impact. I guess what I'm getting at is the people caught in this. Will die. Yes. Yes. And um, I am at a loss as how to even grasp that in 2022, Amos. I couldn't agree with you more. The radio today here in Israel was playing the air raid sirens from the Ukraine. But before they played the air raid sirens from the Ukraine, there was a public service announcement on radio that the air raid sirens are not here in Israel, but are we're playing them from Ukraine. Those of us who have lived through war and or terrorism like like we do have here. The thought of innocent people dying is horrific. This is uh, this is terrible, which takes me back to the enablers and the bystanders. Um, you know, as someone who loves history and who Churchill is the hero, when Neville Chamberlain in 1938 holds the umbrella of peace in our time. So I listened to Boris Johnson today and I was gonna send Mr. Johnson uh, uh, an umbrella and say, you know, Mr. Johnson, it worked for Mr. Chamberlain, quote unquote, worked for Mr. Chamberlain. And um, you're talking the same mantras. Um, and I know that the German um, chancellor um, a couple of weeks ago offered the Ukraine 5,000 helmets. That was a very, very impactful um, offer. That was sarcastic, if you didn't pick Yes. I sense your sarcasm there. It was an, an insult, Outrageous. frankly, given what we now know is transpired. Okay, the UN Security Council likely to vote Friday on condemning Russia, but Russia has veto power in the Security Council. Well, mm-hmm. that's that that is about as meaningful, my friend, as my hair is long. For folks that need to check the show notes tonight, Amos does not have a lot of hair. Hey, <laughs> Bruce Willis. A moment of levity here and a very serious conversation. So in, in wrapping this up, Amos, first of all, safe travels back to the States. Thank you. In a couple of weeks, want to have you back on and in, in the studio live with me when you uh, get back here in the city of Salt. What do you want to leave folks with to consider as we watch this unfold? One thing and one thing only is President Biden and, and or NATO together going to do the difficult step of um, confronting Putin directly engaged. I mean, military, that's the question. Because I think that sanctions and, and diplomacy are, are just not relevant in Putin's mindset. And I think that the, the awful question on the table, whether it's 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue or Paris or um, Berlin, Bonn, um, London, is are we going to engage? That's a terrible, terrible question. But I think at the moment, it's the only relevant question. Professor Amos Giora of the S.J. Quinney College of Law and author of The Crime of Complicity, The Bystander in the Holocaust. Check tonight's show notes for a link. When we come back, James Jackson III of the Utah Black Chamber and Betty Sawyer of the NAACP Ogden Chapter. Inspired by tonight's show, including the Nature of Color exhibit opening this weekend, at the Natural History Museum of Utah, I've got some Alabama shakes for you. Sound and color right here on KRCL 90.9. There's nothing like good music. And with your help, we can continue KRCL's mission of music discovery. See if your employer will match your recent donation to KRCL and double down on your support. Make a gift, pick out a t-shirt, and see if your employer matches contributions at krcl.org. Curly Me is a resource for families with children of color, specifically black girls between the ages of 5 and 14 years. Visit curlyme.org for events and mentoring opportunities to help educate, empower, and encourage girls to be their best selves. KRCL, your community connection since 1979. You're listening to Radioactive on KRCL 90.9. I'm Laura Jones. Democracy Now! comes your way at 7 o'clock tonight, followed by Thursday Night Psych Out with DJ Mike Walton, The Dirty Boulevard with Gianni at 10.30, I Don't Sound Like Nobody with Rich Parks at 1 a.m., 
Illustrated Blues with Jolene at 3, and John Florence gets your weekend started right with a brand new day at 6 a.m. You can hear the last two weeks of any program on demand on our website, krcl.org. Just click on the Programs tab across the top. And now it's time to pass the microphone once again to our guest host for Black History Month, and that's James Jackson III of the Utah Black Chamber, who is sharing conversations with folks featured in the new book from the Chamber, Black Utah Stories from a Thriving Community. Thank you, Laura, once again for allowing me to be a host for this evening's uh, radio show and who and um, highlighting some of our people from the book Black Utah Stories from a Thriving Community. And who I have here today is uh, Miss Betty Sawyer, who really needs no introduction. She's been a trailblazer in the community for quite some time. So, Miss Betty, thank you for being here with me today. It's definitely a pleasure, always a pleasure to be in your presence. <laughs> well, I think it goes both ways in that sense, because, you know, you, you, like I mentioned, you've been in the trailblazer community for a long time. And, you know, I've watched and consider you and others, you know, the models of how to really build this community. Um, and in the book you shared, like your, your, your passion for wanting to build and you've always been an advocate, but when you arrived here in Utah, like what, what, what was that spark that got you moving? You, you, you mentioned that your parents have always been advocates and it's always been ingrained into here, but when you arrived here, what, what helped you get that spark to get things moving out here? I think probably the first thing, just looking for a black community, uh, struck me as, as very odd coming from Baltimore. It's like, where are we? I know we're someplace. And after, you know, looking and looking and looking and finally connecting, I was moved to do something to bring us together so that we saw each other on a regular basis. It didn't have to be church. It didn't have to be a funeral. It didn't have to be a party. We just look for opportunities to come together and work together. Uh, when I came, I went up to the University of Utah because I had just graduated from Oregon State with my bachelor's in physical education. And I heard they had a physical therapy school there and that was my minor. And so when I went up to look into going to school, I started hearing about protests on campus around the anti-apartheid movement. And it's like, what? They're doing that in Utah? It's like, okay, let's you know, <laughs> sign me up. Let me find out more. So that was another one of the things that got me excited and re-engaged in this space in Utah. Awesome. So basically, just getting here, trying to get connected to this Black community that we knew was around here somewhere, um, and then that helped get the spark to, to the advocacy moves. Did you start with Juneteenth initially or with NAACP? Was it both? Like, where did you start? I started with NAACP in Salt Lake City. When I first came, I was living in Salt Lake City. So I was there for two years before I moved to Ogden. And uh, historically, you know, we, we grew up knowing if you went to a new place, you look for the church mm -hmm. and the NAACP. And so I looked for the NAACP and found it. I found Miss Alberta Henry and Bonnie Burley and Jim Dooley and Mary Dooley and the Greens and uh, Dolores, uh, Miss Benz and, and her family, her husband, and felt right at home on that house on the corner. I think it was around 7th East or 5th East and 7th South, somewhere in that vicinity was where the NAACP was located at the time. And so once I showed up, you know, I made myself available and started getting involved with them. It was through the NAACP, Lenoris Bush, exactly, that got me working with Juneteenth. Uh, as you know, I was director of the Office of Black Affairs. Mm -hmm. I, I was in that position starting in 1988, late latter part of 88, 89. And uh, coming from the East, I didn't know about Juneteenth. That wasn't something we celebrated in Maryland. Mm -hmm. And so Lenoris invited me to a meeting at OIC with himself and some of the other uh, folk that worked there, Gail Ortega, Greg Holly, um, and said, here, we need you to get involved with Juneteenth. And so I started going to meetings and supported the work that they were doing. And the next year, uh, when we started meeting to plan the event, like uh, two weeks before Juneteenth, we found out that the park hadn't been reserved. 
for Juneteenth. Oh, shoot. And, yeah, <laughs> those minor details. Yeah. And, and no park was available. You know, June is the beginning of everybody trying to get outside. They've been cooped up and, you know, celebrations everywhere. So no park was available. Mm. And I called, I said, well, let me call my friend up in Ogden because they were going to cancel it. And it's like, you can't cancel it. You know, it's going to be Juneteenth, whether we celebrate or not. So I called up my friend at Marshall White, Maurice uh, White, and said, look, can we come up and do this celebration? And he said, sure, come on up. Mm. And so we had, that was the first time we were in Ogden that I was involved in. There were folks that saying they had them, you know, years ago in Ogden, but uh, we had the festival in Ogden at Marshall White Center. And that started my real sojourn and, and involvement with keeping Juneteenth alive. So, but you're telling me that we were celebrating, Utah was celebrating Juneteenth before Baltimore was celebrating Juneteenth? Oh, oh yes. Uh, you know, we had Kintakunte Day. We had Frederick Douglass, you know, all of those other things, but not Juneteenth. For whatever reason, Juneteenth was not on the list of celebrations. Even recently, it's just uh, resurrected in those areas of the country. Did uh, the Miss Bush ever share how she decided to kind of get Juneteenth moving out in this Utah, where its population is probably around half a percent around that time? One of the things that I was shared was the fact that we had a lot of folks that had migrated here from Texas, and that's how Juneteenth started. But uh, Robert Birch, uh, some of the research that he's done said that in the late 1800s, early 1900s, there was a Juneteenth parade in Salt Lake City. And I was shocked to hear that. And so I think people just from different parts of the country, and like I said, mainly Texas, where it originated, brought it to Utah and just started doing it. Wow. Well, that's incredible. Just to feel like Utah's history, once again, surprises me that we we, we were celebrating Juneteenth long before um, more, dom you know, more where cities are dominated by Black Americans like the Baltimore. We hear small but mighty, um, still, you know, showing out. And I, think um, I love it. That's one of the interesting things that I too find about Utah. The, the more we meet people, the more we read and find historical documents, we find that the Utah was doing a lot of things uh, back in the day, so to speak. And so we have a lot to, to be proud of, even, you know, being Utahs and those of us that are transplants to Utah. It's easy to look at what we don't have, but at the same time, there's a lot that we can celebrate. I feel like that attributes to just the environment that I grew up with, because as, as I have been sharing, you know, growing up at Calvary Baptist Church, um, I was raised in an influence of successful Black business people, um, you know, them pastors, and then you have legislators, judges, like Tyrone Medley was attending church. Then he was the first black judge, um, black business owners. You know, I was surrounded by that. So growing up, I didn't know any different. I thought this is how black folk normally operate. It wasn't until I grew up that I realized that there's a huge disparity. But, you know, to your point, though, to what you shared, that just kind of shows how strong we are with just this little population we have. And and I think we just have this solid foundation yeah. of where we are. Yes. And just thinking about, you know, having back then an office of black affairs and, and the other ethnic organizations had offices. So government was paying attention. We may not have been able to move the mountains that we wanted to move, but we were able to make some significant things happen, even with, you know, the Martin Luther King holiday and then establishing a Martin Luther King commission. When you talk about Calvary, we talk about the people that had uh, been through Utah, has spent time in Utah, famous folk that we read about in other books and publications, the Thurmans. Uh, we think in Ogden, all of the jazz artists that moved and came and played uh, the clubs in Ogden. And, and Utah was that railroad town. It was that, that place between the East and the West that brought us a lot, brought us all here together and to build uh, our Black history, our Black presence. I was, you were saying this, and I'm just trying to 
visualize myself back in those times and going to the Porters and Waiters Club and hearing from folks like Duke Ellington or even hearing like, you know, Joe McQueen playing with these folks down in, down there those times. I, I, let's bring that back. <laughs> yeah, we, we need it. As a matter of fact, one of the things we're doing for Juneteenth this year is doing a jazz brunch. Mm. We're, we're going to honor our Black creatives. You know, it's something we don't see all the time, but when we did the mural project over the Patagonia, it, it just brought to life. We have a lot of black creatives here. Yeah. Singers, dancers, musicians, artists of all forms, painters, sculptors, muralists. Let's celebrate that part and, and hopefully pass that on to our younger generation, not to stifle that creativity. Kaumba, you know, express yourself. And, and this is a time to do that. And I think the book has done that too. allow that space to say, here we are. Yeah. A matter of fact, the, the chamber, we started an arts ca- uh, committee because we recognized that, you know, and wasn't a surprise to me. I just, and this never thought about it because we are, um, you know, talented people in the arts. We like to be creative, you know, and um, not only in just in music, but in every aspect, you know, as far as art and spoken word. And then when we dove deeper into our Black membership, there's, we created this committee. We had almost 30 individuals attending that committee meeting. And I was just astounded. I was like, wow, it was a need. And so how do we keep um, growing this visibility? So I'm excited to see that jazz brunch and continue to highlight our creatives here because Utah overall is a great space for creatives. It is. It is in all forms. My my brother is a rock, rock hound, among other things. And so he creates a lot of things with rocks, you know, from all parts of Utah, the desert. You know, every part of my house has a different kind of rock that he shared over the years. And I ran into another young lady. She's doing jewelry with the rocks. And so and she's like 12 years old and is already expressing finding a way to express herself with the arts. Awesome. And speaking, going back real quick to Juneteenth, um, you know, because we're doing some big legislation right now up on the Hill and the holiday just passed the house. Can you give us an update? You have an update on on where we're at with this status? I do. We we had some good news yesterday. I got a call from Representative Hollins, who is sponsoring the bill, and she sponsored our observance bill back in 2016 to get Juneteenth observed in Utah. And uh, the bill passed the House, as you say, went to the Senate. It was in the Rules Committee. And any of us that knows uh, the legislative process, rules sometimes is a place where they go to bury uh, the bill if they don't want to talk about it or if it's something that they can't agree on. But, But Representative Hollins let me know that she was able to find out why they were holding it in rules and was able to negotiate. So it should come out of rules today if it didn't come out yesterday and be ready for a full hearing in the Senate. And so we're asking people to call their senators, write them, text them, and employ them to pass this Juneteenth state legislation. And and let Utah be on the front end for a change instead of on the back end of issues around equity and inclusion. Awesome. So help, I guess, help the audience and viewers understand what is the difference between what the state's doing and what was already done last year as far as Juneteenth as a holiday? So uh, both House, the House and Senate Congress uh, passed the Juneteenth national legislation and President Biden signed it into law, establishing June the 19th as a federal holiday. And now it's up to states whether or not they will fall in suit and make it a state holiday. Because everyone, you know, isn't impacted by federal holidays. Some things are still open. Some people are still working. And so that was one of our concerns with uh, the legislation getting a state holiday, that the pushback may be around a fiscal note, the cost for people to have the day off. But we have a lot of other days off. So one more won't make a difference. So this <laughs> will allow us as a state to recognize Juneteenth as well. And so that could impact some of our uh, educational institutions, both public and higher ed, and of course, businesses and things of that nature, state agency. So we're excited and wanting to make sure that this is also afforded to us 
on a state level and not just a federal level. Gotcha. Well, that's one of the things that I've read in the last article that um, one of the media outlets wrote was that was one of the hesitations is that now we have another day that we're taking off. It's going to impact, you know, non-producing activities um, of that nature. So what, um, what, what would you say as far as like, we, you know, can we afford having another day off? What, what would you be your response to that? I would say most definitely, because we have a couple of what they call floating holidays as well. You know, I'll, I'll give up 4th of July. You know, there, there are some other days that we have off that I wouldn't mind trading out, but it's not so much about trading. It's about opening and expanding that tent. Uh, one of the things that COVID has taught us, if nothing else, is that we need to reassess what our work week looks like, what our work day looks like because we've been able to still maintain high productivity and not trying to push so many things into our work day. And so I would tell them that this is an opportunity for us to pay attention to mental health of, of our citizens and recognize that this day is, would not take away from productivity, but probably enhance productivity because people have time and can make time to do other things that are important to them with family, community, friends, church, whatever it is, by not having to work twice as long and still get not get the pay that, that they hope to get out of that. Yeah, well, great. Well, I look forward to seeing it pass um, and I'll do whatever it takes to make, you know, to reach out and see what we can do to, you know, put that into a state law. Um, but we'll, so, I'm acting as if, right, as if it's going to pass. I, I, I feel pretty confident about it. But um, what I would like to know is like, if when it does, you know, June 19th falls on a Sunday, and we imagine many companies will um, recognize it on that following Monday, June 20th. And so it's like three days of celebration. So what can people expect coming into Juneteenth this year? Uh, they can expect to have uh, celebrations, we're going to be doing activities starting the first part of June uh, into this state holiday and, and use that state holiday kind of to help culminate all of the exciting things that are going on. So we have events scheduled in Ogden. We're doing kind of a reunion uh, celebration. So we have a significant number of Utahns that used to live here that come back just at Juneteenth because they can see everybody without having to go 15 places. They show up in Ogden at the amphitheater. They get to see everyone. So that Friday night, we're gonna have a little celebration, kind of a reunion event uh, up in Ogden at the Copper Nickel. And then at the amphitheater, our barber uh, battle and braid battle will be going on. We have our partners in Utah County that will be doing a Juneteenth event as well with the new initiative with Sima Hadisi uh, historical program. We're gonna be doing a soil collection and memorial around that, that we partnered with the Equal Justice Initiative. And so there'll be a lot of things going on uh, throughout the month of June, flag raising ceremonies in all of our major cities. And so there's something for everyone to do and an opportunity for us again, to learn more about all of our history because Juneteenth is a part of all of our history, not just black history. That time that freedom was announced to the rest of those that were enslaved and really brought it into it across the United States. And so there's plenty to do and we encourage people to get involved, help us with planning. And of course, you know, send funds all the time because it does cost to do this work, but an opportunity as family, as communities, to embrace this holiday. Awesome. Well, then I have two questions. And one, because you just brought it up, where can people send funds if they want to support the Juneteenth celebration? Uh, they can visit us online at projectsuccess.org. Projectsuccessinc.org is home to the Utah Juneteenth commemorative celebration and, and events. Uh, you can also send it via Venmo and uh, Givelify, all of those major things, but you'll find that on our webpage to support this event. And a big part of our Juneteenth activities is the educational piece 
for our young people and not so young. So they get to do drumming. They get to learn about different aspects of history and culture. So if you're thinking, well, I'm not really want to celebrate a, hol- a, a, a party or a festival, this does not just end up with festivities. It's a lot of education that goes on. We do a State of Utah Black Town Hall meeting. That's kind of our opportunity to come together along with the Utah Black Roundtable to look at issues and solutions that we're working on as communities and organization within our community to address. Okay, awesome. And my next question is, would you be open to um, getting some Juneteenth celebrations down in Southern Utah? Oh, most definitely, most definitely. Uh, One of the things that happened last year with passage of the federal legislation, uh, the Utah Systems of Higher Ed put out a resolution encouraging every college campus in the state of Utah that's under their system to honor uh, Juneteenth and to do our activities. So we're reaching out to those institutions to see how we can work with them to help increase or, or initiate their first Juneteenth programming. Utah State last year did their first Juneteenth uh, celebration and we were able to participate with them Matter of fact, uh, one of their uh, staff and I traveled to Texas to meet with what, who we call the mother of Juneteenth, Miss Opal Lee, who's marched all over the country to get Juneteenth passed as a national holiday. And we sat in her living room interviewing her on the eve of the passage of the federal bill. We left her home at like six o'clock that day and she texts me later getting on a plane to be in D.C. by the next day to be at the signing ceremony, which she was there. And so we are going to be working with our colleges and universities to celebrate Utah everywhere they are. Awesome. Well, the chamber has a chapter down there. And so I know our leader down there, she was already trying to figure out what she can do to have a Juneteenth event. So let's let's it's it's all that's good. Tell her, tell her we're here to help her. Awesome. And, and I'm on the board of the National Juneteenth Observance Foundation who helped push this national holiday. And we have a lot of the tools to help our community celebrate Juneteenth, Juneteenth 101 booklet to add more history than we had before about how Juneteenth came into being. Awesome. Love it, love it, love it. Well, we talked a lot about Juneteenth because a lot of people know when they think, you know, how what things going on Juneteenth, they're going to reach out to Betty Sawyer. But that's not the only thing that you do. That's just one of the main things that you do. But you're also, you know, with the with the NAACP Ogden chapter, correct? Yes, I'm president of the Ogden branch of the NAACP, and like every other NAACP across the country, we are busy with advocacy, policy issues, uh, discrimination concerns all over. And so we've definitely been busy, uh, especially in the education arena this past year. That's what I was going to, my next question to ask is how much work you've been doing with uh, Dr. Thompson there with the DOJ and Davis School District. Yes, we've been at the table from day one meeting along with the Salt Lake branch and and others. Uh, Matter of fact, we're getting ready to move into the next phase with the Davis district. They have a consultant company in place that's working with them to implement these plans. And from the NAACP perspective, our goal is to make sure all of our school districts look at this as a model for how they can do better. One of the things that that I shared with other districts is this could have happened anywhere in the state of Utah. I know a lot of the superintendents give me pushback when I say that it's, oh no, we're not that bad. It's not about being that bad, but there's discrimination going on across the state in our schools. And if we're not intentionally addressing them, then we are allowing harm to take place among students, teachers, educators, and families. So don't wait until DOJ has to come. Don't wait until all of the parents have to constantly write and complain. Be proactive. Set plans in place to address equity and inclusion, diversity at your schools up front 
and work those plans and then we don't have to show up or we show up for the celebration as you tell us what you're doing and not us coming there to chastise or make sure you're doing the right thing. We wanna come and help hear your story of all the beautiful things you've done to, to impact all of our students. Awesome. Well, we appreciate all the work that you're doing in the community with Juneteenth, NAACP. Um, I don't even know if there's anything else that we want to share because, I mean, I think people, I mean, you, you were still doing all this work while you were working full time with Weber State University. I know. <laughs> I don't understand how I was able to do it. All I can say is, but God, you know, the creator empowered and strengthened and, and I have an awesome family. You know, my husband, Butch, has been on this journey with me. He could have said, you know, forget you, lady, a long time ago, because he's everything I do has been a family affair. So the four sons and and my dearest, closest friends, uh, many of them have been on this journey with me for these 33 years, doing not only Juneteenth, but Project Success. We have a number of health initiatives, tobacco health. We've been, you know, supporting this COVID initiative to make sure our communities are safe and get the resources that they need so that they don't become unsheltered or, or die because of this pandemic that we've been experiencing. So uh, it, it's definitely been, I call it a labor of love, because if I had to think about it, I wouldn't have done, you know, a third of what I've done over these years. But I said, but God. Yeah. And so you retired, when was it last year from Weber State? April, it'd be almost a year, uh, April the 15th. I, I chose tax day to retire. I wanted to have <laughs> something that I would remember that date that I retired. So I did it on the 15th of April. Awesome. Well, good. Did, did that give you any breathing room or now you're just grinding harder? Because I talk with other leaders and retiring doesn't mean anything. They just add more to their plate. No, I'm, I'm grinding harder because, you know, now that I don't have to think about that part of my career is opened me up to things that have been on my plate that I couldn't address for a long time. And that's uh, more so around building community, doing what we can for our young people. Uh, and so we did our first STEM initiative. We did a summer STEM initiative this past summer. And so we're, we're looking to do more of that, get back into our education space with after school and summer programming. And so, yeah, just doing more. <laughs> I feel, I, th I think that's just how we roll. We don't know how to settle down here. Yeah, I'm going to learn how to say no and mean it one day. So I'm one, one day, one we'll, day. We'll, hopefully one day soon. And, you know, we'll continue to support you in any way we can. So, you know, eventually you could at least understand what retirement's really like. Yeah. Um. <laughs> I want to go on a trip, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, yeah. just, I'm trying to get to Africa this year. That, that's my goal. So you can send those funds directly to me. You know, my. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, we'll do a go. We'll do a, a send Betty to Africa. Yeah, send Betty to Africa. That, that's my <laughs> ultimate goal for this year is, is to, to, to go to the motherland, to put my feet on, on the soil and to, you know, breathe in the air and to visit some of those historical places that I continue to read about and see on television and all of that, but to actually experience that myself, I, that's that's my ultimate awesome. goal this year. Well, once again, Ms. Betty, it's always a pleasure connecting with you. Thank you for joining us on KRCL um, this evening. And rather than turning over to Laura Jones with everything going on in the world with Russia and Ukraine, we're going to switch it over to a little Marvin Gaye for everybody and, and um, sign off with the song, What's Going On? So thank you once again. Awesome. Hey.